Some people have decided money is where they get their entertainment. And these are the folks you see that are constantly seeking entertainment. They change their avatar. They're participating in these communities, talking about all these phrases. They have cult-like language. That is a huge danger sign because investments should not be exciting. They should not be part of a cult membership. Investments should be boring like watching concrete dry, and they should actually be profitable. That's what it should be. What is up, you sexy bastards? It is your boy, Barcelona, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. me, Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to one of my oldest friends. An old, I mean, I've known this guy over 20 years. That is Ramit Sethi of IWillTeachToBeRich.com. Now today, Ramit is one of the most well-known financial advisors and entrepreneurs online. He's also written one of my favorite books on personal finance called I Will Teach You To Be Rich. Now, he helps a variety of people who didn't grow up with rich parents or didn't learn anything about money and helps them make smarter decisions so they can live rich lives, whatever that means to them. I highly recommend his stuff. Now, I wanted to talk to Ramit about everything going on in finance and what the hell you and me should be doing about it. As well, Ramit has a podcast where he talks to couples and talks about money. That is the I Will Teach You To Be Rich podcast. Definitely go check it out if you like podcasts and money. If you want to learn more about money and really counterintuitive thoughts related to it, you're going to love this episode. Here's three gigantic things you're going to take away. One, how do rich people prepare for the recession and what do they do differently? Two, why renting can be a smarter investment than buying. Three, which type of vehicles Ramit thinks are the biggest waste of money. Enjoy those three things plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Before we jump into the episode, go check out AppSumo.com slash Noah. That's me. AppSumo has the best daily deals on software, so if you are looking to start or grow your online business, you've got to go to AppSumo.com slash Noah and join the newsletter. It's kind of like a Groupon for geeks or a Groupon for software. Also, special pre-show shout out to listener Jay Diggy. That sounds like a cool name. Raw, funny, and motivating. Many people overcomplicate things. Noah lays things out simply and to the point. I love that. And I love you too, Jay Diggy, and every other one of you gorgeous listeners. If you want to shout out in a future episode, you know what to do. Leave a review wherever you listen to this show. I check every single one of them. How are you? I'm good. It's nice to see you. It's been a while, dude. You look like you're in the metaverse. How is it over there? It's boring, dude. Mark, he really picked the wrong thing to invest in. I'll tell you that. <laughs> what do you think you should have invested in? Anything that people actually want. How about that? <laughs> There's a recession going on right now. What are you doing with your finances? What I'm doing with my finances is a little different than what the average person should do. So here's what I'm doing. I'm breaking one of my own rules. <laughs> and that is I'm keeping a little bit more cash than I typically would do. Why? Because I suspect in the next six, seven years, there'll be an opportunity with housing or with other investments. Well, housing is not an investment, first of all. <laughs> at least for your primary residence. <laughs> but I suspect there'll be an opportunity to purchase certain assets at really low prices. And so I've kept a higher percentage than I normally would of my net worth just sitting in cash for years, just sitting there. And it's earning basically nothing. And I don't mind because if I were to put it in the market today, number one, it might go up, it might go down. Number two, I already know my goals with my investments. I'm talking about low cost, Vanguard funds, et cetera. I don't need to put the money in there. So I'm just keeping it set aside as cash and waiting. And, you know, we've all heard those phrases, you know, buy when there's blood running in the streets, et cetera. It's a little bit graphic for me, but there are opportunities when prices go way, way, way down. I want to be prepared for it. If it takes six or seven years to be ready, great. I don't mind. What am I losing? A small amount of interest. But when those opportunities come around, they don't come around that often. That is an opportunity to pounce. What was the percentage you were at before and what's the percentage you're at now? Probably about 10% cash. I wouldn't usually do that because I want that money invested. I want it working for me. What opportunities do you see? Like, What do you see on the horizon if it's not real estate? That's the only one that would be even interesting to me. First of all, I think it's going to be hilarious when one day I buy a house and the internet goes berserk and says, this guy capitulated. Please listen to my advice and listen carefully. What have I always said? I'm not against buying. I just want you to run the numbers. Okay. And all these people who have been fed this propaganda for 75 years by the NAR and all its bullshit telling you that buying a house is always the greatest investment, which is not true. One day, 
I'll buy a house. I know all my parameters. I know my numbers. I know exactly what I want to pay. And I know what percentage I want to have ready to put down. I know it all. But I don't want to buy when things are overpriced. I want to buy when they are desperate to sell this house. And for people who forgot, yes, real estate prices actually go down. You should look at these articles that I've dug up from the 90s. People were putting things that said, please buy my house on their lawns so that airplanes would see it as they were going over. This is in Southern California, by the way. Did you know real estate prices went down hugely in Southern California? Yes, it happened. So it also happened in this century. I have no interest in buying anytime soon. I have no need to buy. I love renting. I think it's an awesome financial decision. It's also a great lifestyle decision. But if there were an opportunity where prices went way down and my wife and I agreed from a lifestyle perspective, then it might be something that we consider. And if it's something that we consider, I want to be financially ready to go. How do rich people generally profit during a recession or how can they? They have cash ready to invest. So for example, when stock market will go down 15, 20% or in March, 2020, when it dropped dramatically, they are ready and they pounce. Now, how do they pounce? They could invest a lump sum right there, but it turns out that rich people get scared just like anybody else. So what they'll do is they'll dollar cost average in. And I remember vividly going, oh my God, March, 2020, but who knows what's going to happen next month? You start to be a little bit subjective about it. That's fine, but they have opportunities. They have cash sitting, waiting. And so they will, for example, buy an apartment, for example, in New York City when prices are way down and people are desperate to sell. They will buy investments, index funds, stocks, whatever. Or they can even pick up private investments if they have access to that kind of deal flow at enviable rates. How do you think regular people can prepare more for this recession? Like if they don't have the cash on hand right now. Regular means what? Not rich? Yeah, I'd say middle class, poor, like someone, you know, maybe has a $50,000, $40,000 job, doesn't have a bunch of savings, just got out of college, or maybe they just lost their job and they have like 10000 in the bank. Most people react to what is in the news rather than proactively building a financial system. So I just spoke to a couple, I have this podcast where I talk to couples about money, you know, from behind closed doors. And one of them said, oh my gosh, groceries are so expensive now because of inflation. I said, oh really? Tell me more. And then within two minutes of their answer, they go, well, actually, you know, stuff costs so much more. So we started actually looking at the price of groceries and we realized we could save a couple hundred bucks just by looking at what we're buying and choosing the cheaper option. I go, ah... Uh, is that inflation really, or is that just being a sensible shopper? So inflation is real in certain categories for sure, but inflation and other words like this also become empty vessels that we can use to fill with our natural financial anxieties. So somebody goes to me, they go, what should I do about inflation? I go, well, what does your financial system look like? They go, huh? I go, what's your savings rate? I don't know. Uh, how much debt do you have? I'm not sure. When's that debt going to be paid off? No idea. What's your asset allocation look like? What's that? And so they focus on words like inflation and they make these transactional short-term decisions for this thing they don't even understand. It's quite a complicated concept and they don't have some basic structures in place. And you know what? Rich people need to do this shit too. I see a lot of stupid rich people on Twitter right now and they're always bragging about their Airbnb strategy and their private equity investments. <laughs> They're going to make less returns than the typical Vanguard investor. They just don't know it. Why? Because rich people, just like the non-rich, need to have a basic financial system in place. And just because you're rich doesn't mean you're smart with your money. It means you're good at making money or you inherited it or whatever happened. But to know how to manage it is the different story. And that is the commonality among everyone. You can have different risk ratios. You can have different proportions. You could even technically have different investments if you're wealthy. But in general, everybody needs to have a basic financial system and know a few key numbers. Obviously, your book is like definitely one of my favorites out there. I will teach you rich. What are the basic financial systems you think everyone should have? Or the basic numbers that people should really be mindful of? So there's a few. So I have a conscious spending plan. Think about a budget, which looks backwards. I don't like budgets. They don't do anything. Nobody uses them. Everyone feels guilty about them, but they're not really useful. 
So I focus on a conscious spending plan where you take your next $100 and you look forward. Where do I want this money to go? And so I break it up into four areas. You should know these four areas. They're really important. Your fixed costs, which I recommend 50 to 65% or so of your take-home money. That would be housing, cars, debt, that kind of stuff. Groceries. You have your savings. Most people don't even think about this at all. And so when they go to buy a house or a car or a vacation, they're like, uh, where am I supposed to get this money from? That I like five or 10% of take home as a minimum. Investments, 10%. And that does include your retirement. And then finally, guilt-free spending. Going out, buying around, restaurants, vacation, 20 to 35% of take home. Now, you can disagree with me on the numbers. You go, Ramit, you're crazy. I live in a high cost of living. It's, that doesn't work for me. Okay, we can have a conversation about that. But at least you should have a basic structure for mm-hmm. where your expenses are going. What's your savings rate? How much are you investing? How much are you spending on guilt-free spending? Perfect. Now we can work from the same page. What are you hearing from your audience during this recession? And then what are you recommending for them? They ask questions like, what should I do about inflation? I go, what the hell do you know about inflation? Where'd you get that from? <laughs> and they go, well, everybody's talking to me. I go, everybody who? Oh, well, I'm on Twitter and I'm following. The- First of all, I look at the people they're following on Twitter. I'm like, you should never read anything these people have to say, okay? I wouldn't get a car wash. I can't believe it. That's number one. Choose carefully who you take advice from. Second, they're asking about, you know, what am I supposed to do about these really high costs? I, I'm not able to save. So here's what's interesting. Again, people focus on what's in front of them because that's what they know. Look, I don't know how to cook anything, okay? If you came to me and you're a great chef and you go, hey, Ramit, I see you're making your chicken this way and you really should make it a little bit more moist. And so how would you vary the intensity of the heat with the salt content? I'm like, what the hell are you talking about, man? I just put the chicken in the pot, I put some salt on it, and then I cover it with this much water. I don't understand how it all works together. And that's how we mostly are with our money. We get paid, the money comes into our checking account, and then at the end of the month, we sort of end up with this much, and we know we should have some type of IRA or 401k, but we don't have a vision. We don't have a structure for how the, we don't have a plan. And the most of the plans that are out there are really complicated. That's why I do what I do, and that's why I bake psychology into it. Do you think we're headed into a recession and for how long? Well, first of all, it doesn't matter what I think. And I hate these prognosticators who go on and suggest it. But personally, do I think we are? Yeah, personally. But you should not listen to me or anyone else predicting what's going to happen. So would your recommendation based on whether it's a recession or not is, is your financial system in place? Yeah. I guess, how do they adjust it given things changing right now? Let's assume that person watching this has a financial system, which I know you don't, you know you don't too, but let's just pretend so that we can all keep going here. All right, so you go, oh, I downloaded Ramit's conscious spending plan and I put my numbers in and this shit doesn't make any sense to me. Oh, that's because you had no plan. That's okay, work it out. You can adjust the numbers. It will start to make sense. I'll tell you where people go wrong right off the bat. I could tell you right now, I talked to a lot of people who get in financial trouble and I also talked to a lot of really wealthy people who are super frugalista and they can't spend it. They're cheap. Okay. The biggest area that people get into trouble is their fixed costs are too high. Their housing cost is too high because they have no ratios, no plan for how to decide how much house they can afford. And also their car is too expensive. So I don't know if you saw, but I've been basically ranting about Americans' love of trucks. So fucking dumb. American in 48 out of 50 states, trucks and SUVs are the most popular vehicle. Now I have nothing against trucks or SUVs. I don't care. But do you know how much these things cost? Do you drive a truck? I have a Model Y. Okay. All right. That kind of makes sense. What did you drive before that? Didn't you have some have Miata or something? Yeah, 2000. <laughs> I still have it, dude. Okay. I, I love it. I have an old car too. So they buy a $70,000 truck. I go, well, uh, out of curiosity, why'd you buy this truck? You know, they're making like $95,000 a year. They bought a $70,000 truck. And they look at me like I'm crazy. They go, what do you mean? Why did I buy a truck? Because I go camping three times a year. I need to pull my trailer. I go, uh, let me get this straight. You bought a $70,000 truck, which finance will cost you about $130,000 to pull a $40,000 truck to go camping three times a year? And you're wondering why you can't save any money? Yeah, I wonder. 
So then we got to decompose all this propaganda about I need a truck, blah, blah, blah. I do this on the podcast a lot. It's quite a joy. Anyway, people get into trouble because their fixed costs are too high. And so one day they wake up and they go, I'm making a pretty good income, but I cannot figure out where it's all going. Now, if you are preparing for a possible recession, what should you change? Well, you should probably bulk up an emergency fund. Let's talk about what that is and how you bulk it up. So emergency fund is like flossing. Everybody says, yeah, 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 I should do it. And then nobody does it because nobody wants to think about things going wrong. They only want to think about things going right. You know who thinks about this a lot? Crypto speculators. Okay. That's all they do is they they talk about it going up. They never actually thought, oh my God, it might drop 70%. Maybe all that research I did didn't actually account for the fact that things go down. They don't just go up. So when I tell people you should have an emergency fund, they go, yeah, 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 whatever. Until there's mass recessions and layoffs and they go, oh, I probably should have done that. March 2020, great example. People got really interested in emergency funds. And so the best time to plan for an emergency is before you need it. How do you create an emergency fund? It's really simple. Take your expenses that you would need just to keep the lights on. I'm not talking about Netflix subscription and eating out at all these fancy places. That's going away. It's just the basics, the fixed costs. And then Calculate that if it's, let's just say for easy math, it's a thousand bucks a month. Okay, you need 3,000 bucks for your emergency fund. Three to six months is a sort of good number. During COVID, I recommended a year and people were like, this guy's nuts. But we really didn't know what was going to happen. And it takes a long time to build up that type of emergency fund. But if someone comes to me, they're like, I think there's going to be a recession. I want to know what to do about it. I would build the emergency fund, bulk it up. And then let that money sit in cash, knowing it's not there to make you money, it's just there for an emergency. How should people approach their mindsets and psychology during this time period? Well, it's interesting if you go online, you see a lot of people, young people especially, who are almost chomping at the bit for a recession. (laughs) They go, oh, I really hope it is because then housing prices will come down and, you know, finally I can afford this stuff. (laughs) And I get it. Housing prices have become outrageously expensive and totally out of touch with reality. At the same time, I would say somebody older taught me this when I was younger because I felt the same way. I was like, young people, it's great to have a recession. It lets you buy in at lower valuations, all this stuff. He goes, listen, recessions are not good. You don't want them. People die. People lose healthcare. People lose their jobs. Children go without being able to go to school. A lot of bad stuff happens. The best thing you can do is control what you can, and that means plan ahead. I spoke to a couple. They're living in Arizona. The guy was working for a mortgage refinancing company. I go, "Uh, dude, how do you feel about your job? He goes, oh, no, no, no. The company will take care of me. I'm like, "Mm, okay. So they were making a pretty good income, but each month they would have a surprise expense come up for about $20,000. I was like, like what? They did a whatever you call those countertops with the marble, they did one in the backyard. They had a Porsche. They were living a very nice life. Now, if they were making a consistent $250,000 a year or so, I would have said, great, you can totally afford it. The problem was their income was super variable because of his job. It had gone from about 20K a month down to roughly 5K a month. You can hear this couple on my podcast episode. They were unable to cut their spending because they were still psychologically pegged to earning way up here. So I told them, listen, you guys can keep your Porsche, you can keep your marble, but if you lose your job and the mortgage industry is probably going to lay you off, my friend, I don't care how much you think your boss loves you, you will have to do some really, really tough decisions soon. Or you can start making a few decisions now. I always ask people, okay, you've told me your situation. You have three options. Option one, do nothing. Option two, make a few small changes. You'll get a few small results. Option three, go huge, get big results. They go, option three, option three, I'm totally in, option three. I go, okay, here's what it's going to take. Sell the Porsche, find a different job, et cetera, et cetera. And they go, oh, no, 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 no. I don't want to do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. And they chop it all down to option two, which is essentially nothing. In this case, I'll leave it to you. You can listen and see what they ended up doing. But the best thing you can do psychologically is make decisions before your back is against the wall. I guess I was wondering your recommendation for someone who's poor. You know, I think they have their budget system in place. 
right? They have a good mindset, like, all right, I'm in control. I got maybe emergency fund. I guess I was curious, like your recommendation is that like, hey, go do DoorDash and Uber Eats and just get income guaranteed. And as you try to create your own businesses, or, you know, if you had someone recent college grad that didn't have a job yet, you know, what kind of recommendations for them would you do? If their goal is to become financially stable, I'll say get a job. It's actually an amazing time to get a job. Amazing. Unemployment rate is super low. Employees have mass leverage. It's slowly decreasing a little bit as the economy gets a little worse. But this is an amazing opportunity. Employees can negotiate raises. And this is something that a lot of people don't think about. We only absorb what the news tells us. Oh, the economy is horrible. But it's actually amazing for many, many employees, including low-wage employees. Nobody really says it out loud because it's not popular to talk about that type of news. Now, will that happen forever? No, hell no. Companies want to take the power back so that they have leverage. When they start to see that, they do things like, you need to come back into the office five days a week. We're cutting these perks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But for the last year, at least, it's been high leverage for employees. So I would tell them, get a job, get an amazing job. Learn the skills of how to interview, how to negotiate. You have leverage right now like you haven't had in a long time. If after you land that amazing job, you got a great boss, you're learning skills, if you still want to do something entrepreneurial, do it on the side. That's what we teach in Earnable. I would totally encourage that. I think if you have that entrepreneurial drive, that's awesome. I like people to be financially secure before they go out and start a business. I think it's better for your business. I think it's better for you. That's my approach. Who are you most impressed with financially right now? What are you seeing any wealthy people do? They're like, oh, these people are during this time period and moving forward, like, oh, they're thinking about it. The people I'm most impressed with are the people you don't see like posting on Twitter with their eight pictures. They're the people who have a Vanguard account and they just dollar cost average in every single month. And they're not the ones talking about recessions. They're like, I have a system. It's totally automatic. That's what I'm doing. Now, what do they do differently during a recession? They do do things differently. They are upping their investments. They're investing more aggressively because they go, I think the market's down 20%. I think this is a buying opportunity. I'm going to keep that going. They're also spending their money wisely. When I say wisely, it doesn't mean they're just investing it. They're going out. They're enjoying themselves because they know they've got a system. And even if the market goes down, even if there's a recession, They're like, we've planned for this. We're ready. We're living our lives. We're not obsessed with what's going on in the news. The people who I talk to like that, they have real wealth. A lot of people have wealth and they choose alternative approaches. Again, I know a lot of wealthy people who have bought a lot of real estate. You've done it. And they've bought Airbnbs. We know a lot of the same people who have done that. Totally cool. But as a general principle, the people I'm most impressed with have a system that works for them. Doesn't only have to be Vanguard, but it's a system that works for them and they just run that system and they don't pay attention to what is going in the market day in and day out. For the people that are doing the opposite of that, I'm trying to just kind of summarize some of the mistakes that they're making or to avoid, especially right now. Everything sounds amazing when you are buying and trading when things are going up. (laughs) Sounds amazing. I know a few um, day traders, okay? (laughs) It's so funny. They day trade and they love to broadcast how much they made. But when the market turns, as it has, they get very quiet. And this is a great psychological lesson. People love to trumpet all their successes, but they often don't know why they are successful. And only when the tide goes out, you realize they were only successful because everyone was riding those high tides. I saw this on Twitter. I posted a semi-joke but semi-serious post saying, if you've discovered that your partner lost all their money because they invested in crypto and lost 70% of their portfolio, send me a note. I'd love to see you on my podcast. (laughs) Do you know how many people I got that took me up on that offer? None. Zero. The same people who anytime I posted about crypto before would say, you know, oh, you Luddite, fuck off. How can you say that? Crypto has made 10,000%, et cetera. But people get very, very quiet. It's a human trait that we love to broadcast our successes, but we are ashamed and we hide from our failures, especially when the thing you've been talking about has become your identity. 
So what are some of the mistakes people make? Number one, they buy and they trade and they don't realize why they are successful. They're successful a lot of times because of luck. Second, they don't factor in all the phantom costs. Phantom costs with trading involve taxes, opportunity costs, and a variety of other things. It's the same thing with buying a house. You know, you hear grandma bought a house in 1970 in Texas for $100,000. A grandma just sold it in the year 2000 for $600,000. And what is 100 to 600? Oh, grandma made $500,000. Grandma forgot about a lot of numbers, okay? Grandma did not pull out her calculator and run. She didn't calculate in inflation. She didn't calculate in maintenance. She didn't calculate in interest. Even with factoring in how much she would have paid to rent, granny basically made inflation, okay? So let's get real. We want to calculate all the phantom costs associated with purchases or things that people consider investments. Those are some of the things that people make mistakes on. I think to your original point, they also don't have a basic system in place. Yeah, that's the thing. I don't mind if someone goes, hey, Ramit, I got my diversified portfolio and I'm going to take 5% and have a blast. I'm going to go invest in my buddy's bar. I'm going to do crypto. I'm going to do all this stuff. I say, okay, great. It's like going to Vegas. You have a number that you're going to spend and once you're done, you're done. That is a system. It's a system that says, I'm going to gate my risk. I have zero problem with that. The problem comes when people invest in something that purely out of luck goes up and they go, I'm a genius. And by the way, this now represents 90% of my portfolio. And why on earth would I ever sell that? Now, it might work out. There are a lot of people who made a ton of money buying speculative assets, whether they be crypto, whatever. And some of them cashed out. Some of them still have a huge amount of money. Fine. But over the long term, you want to think about what type of investor are you? Maybe I'm for you. Maybe I'm not for you. That's fine. It's up to you. It's your money. I know deep down when I started business, I wanted to start it and run it for a long time and run it my way. I did not want to constantly be shifting and pivoting and starting new businesses all the time. It's not me. I want to pick a strategy, run it, and then like I want to move on. I have other things to do besides sitting or fiddling around with the latest investment. Some people are like, I actually love doing that. If that's you, awesome. But you should ask yourself, am I investing for returns or am I investing for entertainment? That's a key question to ask. It's a great one. In your index funds, do you have a high level what you can recommend? Is it like global, US, mostly stocks, a few bonds, kind of the what I typically recommend for people, the simplest way to get started is just a target date fund. It is one fund. You pick it based on how old you are, and that's it. It's automatically diversified. And over time, it automatically gets a little bit more conservative. These are great funds. They're low cost. They're awesome. They're just simple. It's one fund, and you can do the same fund in all your different accounts. It's great. As your portfolio really, really, really starts to grow, you may, for tax reasons, want to actually split up your investments into different index funds. There are some minor tax benefits that at small levels are not really impactful, but at larger levels they are. You can basically look at what your target date fund does, and then you can mirror it if you want. But it's pretty simple. There's a lot of great Boglehead type books that will cover that. I even cover it in my book too. Did you panic at all? No. Like as this stuff happened or during COVID financially? No. In fact, I felt very thankful. So my wife and I, we left the city early during COVID, I took a class on trauma and disasters. And I remember like fires in theaters and concerts where people get squished to death, like horrible stuff. And I still remember that class. And I remember one of the key messages being, when something bad happens, move. The people who survive are the ones who move. They take action. They don't wait to see what the crowd will do. By the time you see, it's too late. So I saw what was happening. And because I have studied compound interest. I know how fast compounding grows. It's Mm. very counterintuitive. If someone says, oh, I'm getting a 7% return, the average person goes, that doesn't sound like that much. But a 7% return compounded over 30 years is a ton of money. Or a 1% fee you're paying your shitty financial advisor is a huge amount of money. So I saw the numbers from COVID. I was like, we got to get out of here. We left New York and nobody was outside with suitcases, none of it. It was really early. And my friends in our WhatsApp group were like, why are you guys leaving? That's weird. And we were like, we got to go. We recommend you guys do too. One week later is when everybody started to leave. So we were paying two rents at once. And I thought to myself, 
how thankful I was that we had the funds ready to be deployed in an emergency. For my team, we gave them COVID stipend right away. We told them, your jobs are safe. Everybody works from home. And then for our customers, we froze their payments if they wanted it. They could just ask us and we would happily freeze their payments because people were very financially uncertain. So no, I wasn't nervous. I was ready. And that's what I want for everybody to be in whatever personal or business situation. Plan ahead. You may not have to use it ever, but that time you do, you're going to be so thankful. It is interesting. Like when COVID hit, I wasn't, I guess, because I had my stuff in place that when it hit, I was like, I have a buffer recently when, you know, recession or not, I was like, I'm not relying on this crypto money or stock money. And then I have enough of buffers. The only thing that I, I would say I panicked on was I had about a million and a half in some of these crypto funds as cash. Okay. And I was like, well, if they go out of business, they're taking that cash with them. (laughs) So I was like, I probably should just get that cash back. What made you decide to think about that then? The risk return ratio just got disproportionate, meaning I had it in like BlockFi and Gemini and you get like a 6% return on USDC. How they actually generate that? It's it's fucking voodoo magic. They can't explain it. They're like, oh, we loan it out. I'm like, to whom? Yeah. How how many volumes? Why don't you show those numbers? They're like, but you get your 6% return. It's like, well, I know they raised $350 million in funding. That's why I had no problem with that for the first year. And then as there's reports of like liquidation on crypto, the depreciating asset, the depreciating pricing, I was like, how are they gonna be able to cover these spreads of this interest that they owe people? That literally is a Ponzi scheme. Like, oh, we'll get money from new people to pay the old people. And at a 6% return on like a million five or a million, like, okay, is it worth losing a million to get 60K? Totally. It's like proportionally not close. And the scary thing was, was, and I did try it a year earlier as a test. It's not easy to get the money out of these places. So when you actually try to withdraw it, they're like, oh, the wire's not going through. What a great series of lessons. I just want to highlight what I just heard from you because wow, whether it's a million dollars or whether it's $10,000, so many valuable lessons. Okay. First off, you picked this alternative asset that you were putting money into. Sounds like you were doing it as an experiment. Cool. Did you do that because the rest of your portfolio, you're comfortable with the diversification? Yeah. So I allocate my asset allocation around that is that I have about 30% in crypto, which appreciated. It used to be 5%, appreciated 30%. And I was like, I'm not buying more crypto more than this 30%. So I stopped all my buys. Okay. And then half of the 30% was in stable coin, even though stable coins literally have disappeared. So it's not that stable. But half was in the stable coin, which I felt safer because there's relatively less volatility. Okay. So you had at least, you had a portfolio, you had a plan, you had some numbers and ranges, parameters yeah. under which you were operating. Okay. So you went here and you put this money in and you're like, okay, it's making six, 7%. You started to get the little nervous. Oh, how are they, if we look behind the curtain, how are they doing this magic? Ah, oh, whatever. I'm still making my money. Fine. And then you start to hear things in the marketplace. Okay. Uh-oh, there's crypto withdrawals. And I look at it, it's actually pretty hard. And then did you end up taking your money out? Yes. It was pretty nerve wracking. I was like, no, if you lost a million, how would you feel? And it was like, it wouldn't put me under because it was within my parameters, but it'd definitely be annoying. And I'd feel okay. I'd be like, oh, be <laughs> okay, it would be annoying. Okay, um, <laughs> fine. So here's my take on this. It's just my perspective on how I think about that. First off, I think it's really cool. You have your parameters for your portfolio. They're totally different than my parameters but at least you have your parameters that you have thought through. This is what I want for people. And since most people don't really understand risk, reward, asset allocation, et cetera, if you don't have a way to think about asset allocation, why don't you go ahead and just start with my baseline? How about that? And then from there, you can change it and tweak it as you need. So you happen to know about money. Great. You chose a different risk parameter, et cetera. That's totally fine. Next. It's interesting that you experimented with this thing. For me in general, I don't really think money is the place where I like to experiment. I like to experiment with food. All right, let's go try a cool new dish, Laotian restaurant, awesome. Some people have decided money is where they get their entertainment. And these are the folks you see that are constantly seeking entertainment. They change their avatar. They're participating in these communities, talking about all these phrases. They have cult-like language. That is a huge danger sign. Because investments should not be exciting. They should not be part of a cult membership. Investments should be boring like watching concrete dry. And they should actually be profitable. 
That's what it should be. Then, this is what I think is the most interesting. You're paying attention to the marketplace. You have to remember, most people are not paying attention to the market. And if they are, they're paying attention to the wrong signals because they're listening to the loudest people, the people with the biggest Twitter following, the people who have a YouTube show, like interviewing. Well, I guess that's what we're doing right now. Oh, shit. Maybe they shouldn't even be listening to us right now. They're choosing signals that are like based on completely arbitrary factors. You know, do I like this person? You might like them. They're very likable. But are they getting you the results you want with your money? And then just like I saw with COVID and you saw with crypto, you were like, okay, I don't want to be the last one at the party because it becomes exponentially harder when you are the last one at the party. When everyone rushes for the exits, you want to be the first one. You do not want to be the last one. The last one gets the disproportionate worst result. That's why I left New York so early. One week later, had we left, all the Airbnbs in the surrounding area were completely gone. Gone. There was nothing available. And for you, as we saw with these liquidity crises, when people start to withdraw their money and everyone rushes for the exits, you cannot get your money out. You never want to be in that situation, ever. Your money should not be even exposed to that, especially the average person watching this. That is why risk management is so important. I really like your point in entertainment, where it's not entertainment. It is an investment. There's a disconnect of, oh, like the boringest way is generally like the boring things win. They're just not exciting. And that's the part I think that we get distracted with or we want like the the quick wins. Well, that's why nobody wants to sit here and listen to me talk about emergency fund. They're skipping the video and going to some bullshit crypto. It's exciting. (laughs) It's fun. I get it. But get a dog. (laughs) <laughs> Do something else. And, and if you want, if you really want to participate and you believe it's the future of finance, okay, fine. Pick a number and manage your risk. But these things are engineered to be addictive. They have a cult-like language. I saw a video where they literally created a presentation on how to handle crypto skeptics. They teach techniques. I've seen them. They're propaganda techniques on how to handle crypto skeptics. In Austin, six years ago, there was a gas shortage. I remember like, I was like, ah, I don't really need gas. And then the pandemonium is real. And I fucking went and bought like a red thing. And I went to the gas station. People were filling up a garbage can. And it was that same experience a little bit with this getting my money out. I was like, I could lose it. And I think we have maybe too much trust in this unknown. We're like, of course, this random site that has a crazy number that's going to promise me like there's these crypto ones that have like 80% return. And I'm like, if that seems a little crazy, and if when you're trying to actually get your money out and you can't. It's definitely uh, nerve-wracking. I am curious, though, for you, what, what would you say investment-wise, money-wise, has been your riskiest investments? Oh, angel investing. And I stopped doing that. I basically lost all my money. <laughs> you know, I had some returns. They were fine. But like net-net, if I had simply taken the money I put in angel investments and just put it in my normal portfolio, it would have done way better. I learned that lesson. And also my deal flow kind of dried up a bit after I moved out of the Bay Area. Some people have had amazing returns, no doubt. And so that's what you started to see as people started to have way more money. They got all this crypto money or they sold a house for triple the amount that they bought it for a couple of years ago. They go, what am I supposed to do with this money? I know I'm going to become an angel investor. Now, it can work. Crypto can work. But you're gambling with luck and in angel investing, it has a lot to do with deal flow, power law, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That was my riskiest investments. And I've kind of wrapped up most of them, not all, but most. And I go, okay, that was entertainment. When I made the investment, I partitioned it off. I said, this is going to be entertainment. If it makes money, great. It's probably going to lose. And indeed, it mostly did lose. And I was like, cool, lesson learned. I actually didn't have that much fun doing it. If a number goes up or down, it doesn't affect me emotionally. And so I did it, checked the box. The returns were not that great. I'm done. One of the things that you're saying, I think subliminally, which is really, really fascinating thing for people to consider is like, what are you going to be a pro and active in? And what are you going to be passive and let do its job? Like you're a pro running, I will teach you be rich.com, now running your podcast, sharing content, having courses, your book. That's all active. And your passive is like, it's the index fund thing, leave it alone. And it's actually pretty simple. Your simplicity is like, this is money generation, this is money preservation. Take it here, throw it in there, 
And I don't really try to, at least in my perception and longer than known you, not trying to do a bunch of like whiz bang things outside of that. Yeah. I, I believe the more financially successful you get, the more you have to fight for simplicity. It becomes incredibly addictive to become more complicated. Hey, here's this PE lockup for 10 years, but we really get great returns. IRRs. Why do I want to invest in this PE bullshit? I know how it works. I know that the amount you claim as IRR is not what's delivered to investors. I know how to read a report. Do you? And then all this accredited investor bullshit. I once posted, Noah, how wealthy people actually don't really have access to all these secret investments that are better than the average person has access to. And people went ballistic. Funny enough, all the people who went ballistic on me were people who are not accredited investors. Okay. They're small time investors and they go, that's not true. What about PE? I go, PE actually does not return as much as you think. Learn how to read the report and you will see what they claim up here is not what the investors get. What about VC? VCs fail to beat the market. Okay. And the ones who do beat the market will not take your money. Even if you try to write them a $50 million check, Sequoia does not want your money. So people were very disheartened. That's not the right word. They were pissed that I even suggested. They called me out of touch, et cetera. I found it hilarious because they were like, what about accreditation? I'm like, dude, first of all, being accredited is like eating at Chili's. It's not that exclusive. (laughs) And second of all, I'm accredited and I can tell you the type of investment opportunities I get. And out of all the stuff I have access to, and I have access to you know these savvy, sophisticated investments, some of them may return better than the S&P. There's no doubt about that. The problem is you can't tell which ones will. When you have a large investment base, to get a 7 8% return is actually really good. Okay, really good. I think they said, there's a quote in my book about Groucho Marx. He said, Groucho, why do you invest in bonds? You don't make any money off that. He goes, if you have enough bonds, you do. I was, uh, it is interesting because it's the discipline part same with AppSumo running as a business, running the finance discipline for your personal life. Yesterday, I got a text from a buddy and he's like, hey, you want to do private art invest, like masterworks? And he's like, you want to do private art investing? And I was like, no. It's also, I guess, just like knowing how much money you actually need to live, what that lifestyle costs. And it's like, okay, well, what's the upside here? What's the downside? So then did you say no? Yeah, I said definitely no. How come you said no to that? That's interesting to me because it's so funny. I remember years ago, I called you for advice on writing my first book. We're talking marketing strategy. I still remember this. I had like 32 page document and you're like, okay, what's your number one goal? I was like, well, I want this and that and this and that. You're like, no, no, no. What's your number one goal? And you really forced me to get crisp about it. So I know you've had that rigorous focus for like 15 plus years. And where would you say you apply that best? And where would you say you apply that worst? I think financially, I don't have like a goal anymore. I'm not like, I want to get money so I can retire. It's like, I don't think of it that way. I think with those kind of investments, what bucket does it fit in? And do I want to deal with, I think with that specific one is like, do I want to deal with it? So financially for me, a lot of it lately is just like simplicity. Like, can I cut out accounts? Can I sell it and converge accounts? I think in terms of that focus, it was just like, I think my YouTube channel is probably the most focused. It's like, we just do three videos a month. That's it. Wow. It's like, and it's grown. Even today, this was a great example. It's like, I just want to grow YouTube and build the audience, engage the audience. But they're like, hey, do you want to do Snapchat today? And then someone else to message me, literally to like, you want to do LinkedIn today? And I was like, I can do one experiment. That's it. One. Wow. And they're like, well, but we have to start. I'm like, just one. And the one will do TikTok. Sure. That level of simplication, I'm trying to bring into AppSumo, which is like, we're doing H2 planning. And it's like, we have all these fucking things. It's like, what are these all tying to? And right mm-hmm. now, what we realize is like, it needs to tie to hit our revenue targets. So whatever will hit us, help us hit our revenue and net income targets. We need to prioritize anything else. We can have some allocation, but it shouldn't be the majority. I hear that. And it is so hard to feel that. I've seen it in other people, but I see it in myself. I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Focus, focus, focus. And then I go, but uh, there's eight, 18 things we got to do. And, and this is important because blank, blank, blank. And my team knows it. And it's frustrating. I want focus, but the execution of it is so difficult. I will say that's why I have some compassion. You know, I joke around about crypto guys and stuff like that, but I also understand that all of us, me included, have parts of our life where we are not focused. And it's not enough for someone to just be like, focus. That's just a word. Everyone goes, yeah, 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 yeah. I should floss. I should focus. But 
to truly feel it, I think you have to experience some pain. And with finances, the pain could be realizing you lost a million bucks because you couldn't get your cash out of this purported 18% return bullshit. Or it could be that you realize you have a late fee on a credit card that you opened up because somebody told you you could get 40,000 points and you did it, but you forgot. Now they charge you an annual fee. You missed your payment. Now it's dropped your credit. Now your interest rate went up 0.6%. You have to feel some pain before you finally go, oh my God, of all these things I was doing, two of them actually mattered and the rest were pure noise. And until you get to that moment, nobody telling you to focus, nobody telling you that you should just simplify your investments, none of it's going to reach you. But the moment you feel that pain, you are ready and you're going to use my financial system, set your stuff up, automate it, get on with your life. I think it's also a parallel experience of what's the irrational pieces we have with money. I think it's also the irrational pieces as much as the focus piece, which is someone offered me another like, hey, do you want to start some another type of venture or whatever? I'm like, I'm doing AppSumo number one, YouTube number two, and then I have a book. I don't have capacity to add anything else. Super disciplined. And so it, it is nice to be able to be clear on what things matter for each other, for yourself. Like, is it that work? What is the focus on your finance? I was thinking though that you're rational. Like I was at the airport this week. It was like $8 for water. I was like, I don't care how rich I am. Like, I just can't <laughs> fucking do that. Well, we had that conversation. You said sparkling water. You can't do it. And then I told you my computer. And I got to show you uh, my you computer. on this old air? Yeah. It's gotten even worse because the screen part is coming off. But the new one is out, I think, in a month. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Uh, I was inspired. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, one last thing I want to say for people. These are questions we should be thinking of. What should I do about inflation? What's my savings rate? All that stuff. But ultimately, there's got to be something bigger than just the money question. That's what the rich life is about. What are you doing with your money? How are you spending your money in a way you love? For most of us, we go through our entire life just asking these transactional, tiny questions. Am I saving enough? Can I afford this truck? And on and on and on. It's just one thing after another. And there's no vision. So when I talk to these couples and they're fighting about money, one's an overspender, one's not, the biggest problem is they don't have a vision. I go, what's your rich life? They go, huh? Well, I want to do what I want, when I want. I go, don't ever say that to me again. What do you want? And then they actually, through the exercises I give them, they paint this beautiful tapestry of a vision. I go, let's do that. Let's take your money and let's actually spend extravagantly on what you love and let's cut costs mercilessly on the things you don't. And suddenly when people have a crystal clear vision, I want to go to Kenya. I want to go on safari. I want someone to plan the whole thing for me. And I want to take my family and surprise them with these type of seats or a hot air balloon safari. Now that is a vision. Okay. And it could be that big or it could be as small as my vision used to be in my twenties. I want to be able to buy appetizers when I go out. Cause as a kid, I couldn't afford to do that. Whatever the level you're at is pick your dream, pick the rich life vision. It's got to be evocative. It's got to be specific. And suddenly your money has a purpose. That's how you do it. I love the vision. I love that, man. I was reflecting myself as you were talking about it too. I bike a lot and I was on a bike about six months ago and I was biking with my buddy Dan and he's like, hey, how, what do you think of your bike? And I'm like, it's okay. He's like, why wouldn't you get a bike you love? I was like, I never really considered that specific thing. And so then I did take me a few months, but I bought like the fucking best of the best. And I'm like, I like love it. I like look outside in the garage. I'm like, how you doing? What are you up to? It's like, I'm hanging on the wall. <laughs> but the other part of that, I do think having a, a destination makes recessions or these challenges. You're like, you know, you're where you're going. That's right. It makes it more palatable. And even if things drop a little bit, you're not reacting to the noise. You have a bigger vision and it's personal to you. Your vision is totally different than mine. That's the beautiful thing about it. The way you construct your journey to get to your vision is yours. That's your rich life. Do you have one crazy story to finish us off with about people with money? Yes. I have a podcast episode. It's a two-parter. I got an email from somebody who works in tech and he said, help, all caps, my wife of 21 years is about to divorce me because I'm too cheap and our net worth is $13 million. I said, let's go. We got on the conversation. You can actually hear this couple. And $13 million, that is a lot of money. That's a lot. She is furious because he insists they fly 
in economy seats. But that's not even the worst. She goes, look, I don't need to be a prima donna, but why can't we get business class? We can easily afford it. At one point, she looked for mattresses for their kids. She spent two weeks researching it. She showed him two, three, 400 buck mattresses. He goes, that's too expensive. I mean, the stakes are high, right? We're talking about a 21-year marriage potentially getting divorced because he can't let go of his old money stories. And so before you listen to the episode, I would challenge everyone to think, how would you approach this? You can't just tell someone you're being stupid. It's not stupid. There's something much deeper going on. If you have $13 million, what is really going on here? That is what you will hear in the two-part episode. I think the overall thing which your show does and I think you've actually matured with this, is just what is the money relationship you've had and what's the one you want to have today? And I think that's a, a great thing for people to really just like, what's the narrative and how do you want it to be? There you go. Totally. That is a wrap. I hope you loved the episode as much as me and Ramit did talking and making it for you. Go check out Ramit at his website, iwt.com. That's I Will Teach You To Be Rich. Go subscribe to his podcast. It is awesome. I Will Teach You To Be Rich podcast as well. If you're looking to get your finances in order, get his book. It's $10, probably the best money you're going to spend all year. I will teach you to be rich. Next text a friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's go do our taxes together. Before you go, tweet at me or slide in my DMs on Instagram or TikTok at Noah Kagan. I love hearing from you. I reply to most people and what you think of these episodes. Also subscribe to my newsletter, sendfox.com slash Noah. And I'm yelling at you people. I love you, but I want to email you. There's over 100,000 people every week at this newsletter about business, life, and marketing. Sendfox.com slash Noah. Finally, a couple shout outs to the amazing team I get to work with. Thank you to Jason at podcasttech.com for making these episodes sound so damn good. Jason, I don't know how you still work with me, uh, but I, I super appreciate it. Thank you to Mitchell, Jeremy, George, Cam, Sasa, Nikki, and Jen from the door team for all the magic y'all do. And finally, shout out to the AppSumo billboard team. We built one in Austin. Max, Victor, JR, Jordan, Lindsay, Frank, and Kellen. No one should be paying monthly for software. Damn, that's good. Really good branding. Thank you. Shout out to that team. Paying monthly for software in this economy? Slap! Have a glorious day. Ooh, this is a good one. What's your favorite season? God.